Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, the podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the co-hosts of this channel. Today, we're talking to Dr. Elizabeth Young, a research scientist and lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania. At Penn, she leads, uh, she co-leads research initiatives on basic income at a national scale at the University's Center for Guaranteed Income Research. And prior to her appointment there, Dr. DeYoung was awarded a Mellon ACLS Public Postdoctoral Fellowship and led social policy research initiatives at the Reinvestment Fund in Philadelphia. She earned a PhD at the Institute of Irish Studies at the University of Liverpool, where her doctoral work focused on post-conflict politics and planning in Northern Ireland. She also received an MA in Irish Studies from Queen's University Belfast and a BA in International Affairs and Modern Languages from Northeastern University in Boston. Dr. DeYoung has authored several peer-reviewed publications, and her first book, Power, Politics and Territory in the New Northern Ireland, has just been released by Liverpool University Press. It's obviously that book that we're here to talk about today. Dr. DeYoung, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the introduction. Sure, sure. So I might jump right in with a, a very specific question about your book. You focus a lot on a place called Girdwood Barracks. Um, I'm much more a historian of the Republic of Ireland rather than Northern Ireland. So it's not totally embarrassing to say I'd never heard of Girdwood Barracks. I had no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, a lot of people haven't. So (laughs) sure. So maybe just tell us like what it is and why it matters, why it's important. Sure, absolutely. Um, So the Girdwood Barracks, they were the main army barracks in North Belfast during the Troubles. Um, So really a central site of conflict. And they're they're located in a part of North Belfast that bore witness to countless atrocities. Um, You know, you had sectarian murders of civilians and riots and raids and and constant surveillance by the British army. Um, You had houses burnt out in this area. Um, And so this patch of land, it's about 27 acres, and it's extremely contested. Uh, It functions, you know, if you're looking at a map of Belfast, it it functions as an effective buffer zone between these neighborhoods that are highly divided by ethno-national identity. Um, It sits right in the middle of several interfaces, uh, which are places where contested territories meet. Uh, So on one side, you have, for instance, um, the Catholic Nationalist New Lodge area, and the Protestant Unionist Lower Shankill, and those are divided by a roundabout. Um, I wish I was writing this down for you. Um, on the other side, you have a, a pro- the Protestant Unionist Lower Old Park neighborhood, and that's divided by an actual peace wall, uh, a metal barrier, 
um, from the Catholic nationalist Lower Cliftonville. And so for these four neighborhoods, the way that they're divided and the way that the barracks functions as a buffer is, is really stark. Um, and, you know, these, these neighborhoods are divided by ethno-national identity and, and really traumatized by decades of violent conflict. Um, but they have a lot in common. They all, you know, year on year feature at the top of the multiple deprivation index, um, have really high rates of unemployment and extremely low levels of, of physical and mental health, uh, high levels of food insecurity. North Belfast, critically, for a long time, has experienced a housing crisis, uh, particularly among the nationalist Catholic population. Um, and so, so I say all this to to kind of introduce that back, you know, back in the wake of the Good Friday Agreement, when this huge parcel of land, the army barracks, was demilitarized, it offered this enormous opportunity for North Belfast and the, these four neighborhoods that had been, you know, marginalized and ignored and, and traumatized. And so the barracks site really was lauded as having huge potential. Um, there were, you know innovative regeneration plans and visions from politicians and community groups that this would be an internationally significant site, um, you know, that it would provide the peace dividend for areas that desperately needed it, and it would serve as a catalyst for peace building. Um, you know, this is a symbolic transformation of a site of conflict to a site of reconciliation. Um, and you have 27 acres of land as well to to support social housing in an area with a real need for it. So it really felt like the Girdwood barracks were a boon for, you know, um, post-agreement Northern Ireland. And unfortunately, this has not happened. Uh, it's, you know, over 11 years and 11.7 million pounds of peacebuilding money. Uh, the politicians involved in the site the, the DUP and Sinn Féin, to name them, uh, were ultimately unable to agree on any kind of thoughtful redevelopment of the space. And, you know, what happened was they ignored the prescriptions of the Good Friday Agreement throughout the development process. They ignored really fantastic organizing work that had been done at the community level and they refused to provide adequate housing for an area in crisis. And so the whole enterprise became this kind of tit for tat, zero sum carve up. Uh, the result today, if you go to the Girdwood Barracks site is a community hub. Uh, it's a leisure center, it has a sports pitch, it has 60 houses towards the back of the site. And it's a real white elephant of a building. It really does not do anything for the surrounding area. And it just, effectively reinscribes all of those physical divisions I talked about earlier. Um, so Girdwood, I think, is really important because it's not only the story of a missed opportunity for North Belfast and, and really for Northern Ireland, but it's it's a microcosm of the peace process and how it unfolded. You know, you had the hopeful aspirations of the agreement, um, and these were ultimately obscured by the power dynamics between the DUP and Sinn Féin and the tit-for-tat kind of zero-sum uh, resource competition that eventually caused the assembly to collapse. Uh, you know, there, there's still not a working government in Northern Ireland today. And, and so, you know, I think Girdwood is, is a fascinating study on its own, but also an allegory for, for the peace process itself. Mm -hmm. So, so one thing I was thinking as I was reading your book was like in a in a normal society, right? Normal in scare quotes. In a normal society, something like this would be just snapped up 
by any working class community, right? If there was 27 acres all of a sudden that just became available for social housing in Dublin, everyone would be clamoring to get it. And obviously, as you're describing, the the opposite happened. Um, There's almost like a resistance to doing anything with it. Um, and I was kind of wondering, like, given that this is like would have been a boon for working class communities in North Belfast, what what does what role does class play in, in the kind of stuff that you're studying? Um, and and what do you think class even looks like in Northern Ireland? How much does it get skewed by all these other forms of identity? that are swirling around? Yeah, I think I think it's a great question because it's easy to kind of just evolve into the orange and green um, when we talk about Northern Ireland. But class is so critical to, I think, any analysis, um, and particularly when you're looking at redevelopment and investment. Um, you know, you can see in Belfast that, and, and I'll just speak to Belfast, you know, because Northern Ireland as a whole, um, I really only, I worked in Belfast particularly, but investment has really only taken place in spaces that were unproblematic to begin with. And these tend to be places that um, are more middle-class who were, you know, perhaps buffered a little bit from, from the conflict, the worst of the conflict. So, you know, if you take South Belfast and East Belfast, for instance, um, Invest Nor Northern Ireland alone has spent over 150 million pound there, uh, compared to approximately 40 million in West and North. Um, and so the former, you know, include um, po post-industrial areas, areas um, that are less working class, are, are a little bit, um, you know, better off. And the, the West and North are the places that were hit the hardest by conflict and that have those sectarian fault lines to contend with. Um, you know, in the book, for instance, a uh, little known fact that Prony was actually once a possibility for the Girdwood site and the advisory forum had tendered for it, but they didn't get it. And it went to the Titanic quarter instead, which was, you know, kind of a more unproblematic space uh, for development. And, you know, it's understandable in some respects, but you know, I I often walk Belfast and something that always really infuriated me was um, this this idea that uh, academic Brendan Murda terms it the twin speed city where the outskirts of Belfast, uh, the west and the north and the parts that are kind of cut off from the, the city center by the motorway are excluded from the relative prosperity of the center and kind of the new Belfast, as it were. And it's so mm -hmm. clear, you know, when you're on foot and you're walking from, say, North Belfast into the center, um, I remember feeling such a clear divide walking back from North Belfast and some, some kind of, you know, grim environments. And, you know, in 10 minutes, you cross over the motorway and, and you're in city center and it's a different world and you've got tourists and cocktail bars and the after work crowd. Um, and it might be a little different now, I think, you know, with the impact of the pandemic, but um it really felt like there were two Belfasts and one was getting the investment and the tourism and the other had kind of been pushed to the side. Um, and I think all cities are like that in a sense, you know, you always have these, these class divides, but it just, it feels particularly um, potent in Belfast. Mm -hmm. So um, I might maybe ask you to talk a little bit more about, about that thing of walking, because it's something you obviously talk about quite a bit in the book is like, that's almost like your methodology of just wandering around the city and seeing what you can find. How did you, I guess, walk into that? How did you end up taking up that as your methodology? And and um, 
what does it do for you that other methods wouldn't do? Yes, I love walking. Um, it's absolutely my methodology. And, you know, I've, I've worn out many pairs of Doc Martens in my uh, endeavors. Um, I believe it offers so many opportunities as a researcher, as a human, to just explore and truly experience places. Um, so when I first moved to Belfast, I was I was, you know, 20 years old. I was a student and I just walked everywhere. Um, I just wandered the city aimlessly and I went, you know, up the falls and down the Shankill and through Sailor Town and the New Lodge. Um, and some of it was solitary. You know, I love moving through spaces alone and just paying close attention to, to what's visible and what's not. And the presence of absence in places, which I think, you know, in, in, places that have been affected by conflict can feel um, feel really powerful. I don't know if that's the right word. You know, sometimes I would walk and I would look for particular memorial plaques or markings that had denoted where something had happened during the conflict. And I would try to, you know, kind of piece together stories from the past through walking the present. Um, and I became really drawn to how, you know, memory and emotion are wrapped up in how people make sense of place. Um, I loved paying attention to the mood of spaces and, you know, just observing the the neighborhoods and the chip shops and the petrol stations and the vacant lots and, and eavesdropping on people as I walked. Um, you can really get a sense of a place through it. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I think, you know, I, I could, I could talk forever about this. I'll, I'll try to, you know, keep it short, but it's really interesting walking a place like Belfast because, you know, you can note how you can note the power dynamics of a place. Um, some murals, for instance, instance, can be a barometer of of local opinion and who's in control of a neighborhood. Um, you know, for instance, Tigers Bay. I remember had uh, a mural. I think it had been funded, you know, by a peace program or something, and then that was painted over when a different faction of paramilitaries took over. Uh, so you can tell different allegiances by you know, who's had a hand in building the memorial gardens and, and painting the murals. Uh, you can see where, you know, investment has been directed. And so walking was really the first step to understanding Belfast. It's such a complex place geographically, and it has all these visible and invisible barriers and walls and obstacles. And, um, you know, as I guess it's, it's, it's difficult to classify myself but I say as an anthropologist uh, there's value in being in a space physically and mm -hmm. learning from your surroundings and and physically navigating you know what it's like to move through these divided areas and to feel awkward and nervous and you know to get lost um, along the way and so you know the environment is so important to my research practice mm -hmm. um, I mean there's something you mentioned there that I think is something I, I struggled with 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 your book, but it struggled with in a good way um, of not being able to figure out what method, what discipline is this person working in? Like, is this anthropology? Is it geography? Or is, is the answer just what you're doing is just Irish studies? Yeah, honestly, I have always struggled to define my work discipliner. Oh, this is a, this is a tough word. Disciplinarily. Mm -hmm. um, I lean towards anthropology because I've always been, interested in people you know I've always been happy sitting to the side observing people 
Um, and, you know, in, in an intellectual sense, exploring why people behave and believe and interact the ways that they do. Uh, but then that kind of brings me into geography because I want to know how do these behaviors and beliefs shape and reflect our surroundings? And, and how do people and place exist in this kind of mutually constitutive relationship where each shapes the other? Um, and then I find myself a little bit in history because I'm like, how does that change over time? And, you know, how do our surroundings reflect these shifting political and social and economic dynamics? Um, I would say, you know, and I don't think you can study Northern Ireland without immersing yourself in the past, if only as a mooring point, because, you know, the past still very much lives in the present in the North um, in the way that. I think identity is formed and shaped and understood. Um, so that's, you know, kind of a meandering way of saying that I, I, I struggle to define myself. Mm -hmm. um, I think something that I've always wanted to do with my work is using qualitative methods to bridge the academic and the applied worlds and to, to bring to bear stories that have real import and consequence for policymaking and space shaping and community building. You know, I, I really love listening to people and I feel grateful that the people in the book shared their stories and their time with me. Um, I'm, I'm not an activist, but I've been lucky to research alongside activists and advocates and residents who are identifying these really clear social injustices and moving forward important conversations. And so, you know, I, I wanted to not only document their work, but highlight it and just kind of contribute in my own small way by writing the Girdwood story. Um, so I never, you know, I never wanted my research to stay in the ivory tower and I've never felt quite comfortable there. And I think that's why I've kind of moved a little bit into the field that I'm currently in, which is much more uh, applied. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So I might kind of go into that thing you're saying of, of the past, living in the present still in Northern Ireland. And your book, um, the subtitle of it describes it as being a study of the new Northern Ireland, but that's in scare quotes, mm -hmm. which I assume is intentional. So, so what exactly is new here? How much does the past still stay the same? How much is, is future oriented? Um, I guess, why, why the scare quotes, I guess, is the question I'm really asking. Yes, um, the scare quotes. I, I think there's a couple different reasons I, I gravitated towards the scare quotes. Um, I think, you know, the narrative of the new Northern Ireland in terms of politics, um, it's frustrating, I think, to hear sometimes that, you know, Northern Ireland is sorted. Um, 
because it's just so complicated. I think the peace process created the space and the architecture for an alternative future in Northern Ireland. And I never want to denigrate that. You know, it's of course it's things are better than they were. But in practice, the the um, aspirations of the agreement have been subverted by identity politics, uh, and in particular, naming the DUP and Sinn Fein. Um, they are they are you know perhaps the 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 villains of this book in a way um, because I think in practice, you know, what's happened is the same dynamics that fuels the conflict, the opposing identities and the territorial claim and and just fighting over access to resources. It's just moved into the corridors of Stormont. So, you know, the root causes of the violence are were really just being expressed through the medium of politics as the DUP and Sinn Féin moved into power sharing. And you see this in the way that they made policy, in the way that they changed community relations strategies, in the way that they directed funding to, you know, different areas and groups based on their I guess, political agendas. And you see it in the way that spaces like the Girdwood Hub have been built, which just reinforced division, um, did nothing transformative for space or society. And so, you know, I guess I use the scare quotes, it kind of riles me up when I think about this. And I think about the way that politics hasn't really changed and the way that that impacts people. Um, every in everyday life, you know, you have people still on the waiting list for housing, living in these unsafe conditions and struggling in so many ways. Uh, and the politicians have just abdicated responsibility for supporting people and making good, rational policy. Um, so when we, we when we do talk about a new Northern Ireland, and I think there are, you know, I, I don't want to be all doom and gloom. There are brilliant things happening, but the politicians really haven't had much to do with moving that along and they haven't led. And I mm -hmm. don't really think they should be able to pat themselves on the back um, because it's despite them and not because of them that things, you know, on the ground continue to chug along and move forward. So over the years that you have been going to Northern Ireland, what do you think has really changed? Like what what is genuinely new? Well, I think, you know, I guess an obvious answer is... Um, the the new Northern Ireland under the tourist gaze, you know, um, I think in some ways the rebranding of Northern Ireland with Titanic and Game of Thrones has been a real success. Uh, it's brought jobs and economic growth and and a sense of normalcy to Belfast. Um, so I've certainly noticed that. Um, but again, you know, thinking about the, the class as we mentioned earlier, it does it does still exclude people a little bit, you know, like I, I note that the price of admission to the Titanic experience, for instance, it's still 19 pound for concession. And, you know, a lot of people who uh, live near the, the old shipyards and whose, you know, families probably built the Titanic, they can't afford that. Um, I think on the other hand, though, you know, I when I, I was just back in Belfast during the summer and went out with some friends to you know, to a new, oh, I forget the name of it, but there's, there's been some really cool redevelopment in terms of like taking um, old spaces like warehouses and mills, converting them into artists and musician studios, um, small businesses, markets. I think, you know, there's a lot of really cool things happening in Belfast and there's always been I, something that I've always loved about Belfast is there's a sense of creativity and there's so much talent 
uh, in the city. And so I think, you know, there has been more room for that to expand as well as as the years move on. Mm -hmm. um, so I hope that answers your question. Sure, sure. Um, th there's something you said at the very start um, that I think is absolutely correct of like the the tendency people often have to to only view Northern Ireland in these like stark binaries of of Protestant and Catholic. Um, and you point out at the end of your book that there there are these increasing numbers of people in Northern Ireland who just in effect opt out of these categories. They opt out of of a sectarian conception of politics. So, for instance, at the most recent election, I think it was something like twenty percent of Northern Irish voters just don't vote for either overtly Catholic or overtly Protestant parties. Right? They vote for uh, the Alliance Party or People Before Profit or the Green Party. Can I just ask you to tell us more about that? Where and where maybe you see it going in the future? Sure. Um, I think you're right. I think you know the last couple of elections. Um, it started, you know, in 2016 when I remember uh, people before profit had this incredible like landslide win in West Belfast, which had traditionally been Sinn Fein territory, um, and I think that was indicative of the fact that you know for for quite some time it had been that the DUP and Sinn Fein were in this relationship of mutual accommodation, where Sinn Féin would often kind of acquiesce to the DUP to, to keep things running smoothly and kind of keep things, um, you know, working to some extent. But eventually that collapsed because people were getting frustrated. They weren't seeing, you know, housing. They weren't seeing movement on um, minority language rights for the Irish language. They weren't seeing, you know, what Sinn Féin had promised to their um, electorate. And so I think the first kind of shift was that 2016 election. Um, and, you know, then the assembly collapsed and it's collapsed again. And I think, you know, with each collapse, it's 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 almost laughable. But I think people are just total. My, my sense is that people are totally fed up. You know, um, I think as the assembly has continued to fail, that people are increasingly more concerned with just the bread and butter issues. You know, we've. We've lived through a pandemic and record inflation um, and the NHS is crumbling and identity politics just doesn't seem as relevant. Um, and I think that it feels and again, you know, it's been I haven't uh, researched in, in Belfast as recently, but it seems to me just an, as an observer that um, the politicians are really ill equipped to fill this space. And so other kind of movements and activists and parties have filled um, the vacuum that they've left. And I think that's been a really good thing. Um, I think, you know, even when, even when I lived in Belfast, I had a sense that, you know, most people were just getting along and living life. You know, there was a lot of, um, you know, going to work and school and the pub and making music and just... Um, a lot of humor. It was, you know, it, it wasn't that uh, the orange and green affected everything in life. Um, but anyway, I do, I do see a shift in politics, and I think there's a lot of scope for research on on how that's changing and which groups might be uh, changing. And I, I definitely think that that's that's ongoing. That's like a new mm -hmm. a new pathway. Sure. So, so do you think you'll stay working on Northern Ireland or where do you plan to go next as a researcher? I, I, I've always loved, I, I, I miss Belfast so much. I'm currently based in Philly. Um, and I, 
I'm working in a very different space at the minute, um, very different research, but but with potential ties to Northern Ireland. Um, so I'm currently uh, a research lead at the Center for Guaranteed Income uh, Research, as you mentioned, at Penn. And we're uh, involved in evaluating experiments that are happening across the country here where cities are piloting the idea of a basic income. And so it's this idea of giving people unconditional cash transfers, no strings attached every month um, and seeing what happens. And so, you know, we've been working here in the States on a national level um, and kind of building an evidence base here, but we're really keen to kind of make connections now on an international scale and work with this um, kind of network of researchers who are exploring basic income worldwide. And so, you know, I think the idea of a basic income in a post-conflict context, um, particularly for those who have not received the so-called peace dividend, has real potential. Um, I think there's a lot of really cool work going on in Belfast, in um, Northern Ireland, Ireland, the UK, around alternative economies. Um, and how do we think differently um, about you know, money and value in a world that, you know, capitalism hasn't, isn't really serving us. Um, so I think there are some really cool connections that I'm, I'm going to try to explore um, so that I can, I can get back over to Belfast. Wonderful. Uh, well, Power Politics and Territory in the New, New Northern Ireland, I believe is just out, right? It has just yes, released. Yeah, okay. last week. Great. Well, it's out now with Liverpool University Press and is well worth reading. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. DeYoung. Thank you so much for having me.